This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The city consultants are recommending against a city council effort to redraw ward boundaries. This is an issue that has been kicked down the road for so many years now. Last October, the consultants prepared a report for council with two main alternatives. But council voted instead to direct the team to get suggestions from interested councillors. In other words, no, 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 we'll do this. Uh, This thing just reeks of self-interest. Well, there is a petition underway to try to do something about that uh, before council actually deals with this in just a few days, as a matter of fact. Matt Jelly is one of the folks that is uh, the driving force behind that, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Excellent. First of all, how's the petition going? It's uh, it's going well. We actually um, uh, we need 500 electors is sort of the rule, and we're... Uh, we're at about that amount now, but Good. we're still collecting signatures just to make sure um, that it qualifies. And so we're we're looking to uh, collect sort of a few hundred more uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks. Sure. I, well, because you remember the last time you tried to do this. I mean, there were some people on council that took exception to some of the names on there and uh, kind of a pre-Trump thing, wasn't it? Just saying, oh, those are people already been eligible. So you, you safe rather than sorry, right? Well, yeah, we did this uh, petition effort a few years ago, and um, we submitted 680 signatures, um, and they compared against the electors list. Uh, and um, you know, especially right now, we're working on the it's the two, 2014 electors list that they have to compare it against. So, if somebody's moved since then, uh, they may be an eligible voter, but might not uh, count. So that's why we're collecting more signatures, uh, just so that it's not disqualified by. Uh, it was actually staff who. Uh, disqualified at the last round. So, uh, and there were some comments by councillors as well about where yeah. the signatures are from. But it's you know, city of Hamilton electors or city of, Ham- of Hamilton electors, no matter where they're from. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, the more the merrier. So you know, we'll we'll give people the address on how they can get a hold of that in just a few minutes. Let's let's yep. talk about this issue itself. Uh, uh, this is something that that uh, has been bugging me for the longest time. I mean, uh, I, we and we've talked many times on this program, Matt, about how council tends to kick very important and controversial issues down the road. And so I will do with that later. Well, they never get around to it for one reason or another. But the sword over their head right now is really the OMB here, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, I, I mean, council uh, did vote to undertake a review, and that's what we've been doing for the last uh, uh, year or two, uh, that the consultants were hired uh, for $270,000 to do a citywide consultation. They, they held meetings in uh, all parts of the city, uh, two rounds of consultation. Um, so that that's the report that came before council in November, and of course, as you mentioned, they had sort of their own ideas about how ward boundaries should be drawn. Um, and I mean, the the part that uh, the part about that that bothers me is that after we do that much uh, public consultation, the councillors interject themselves into the process then, and then it's sort of uh, all those hours that citizens uh, uh, spent attending those meetings are effectively wasted, especially if. And what we found out from the new report is that council is essentially advocating for the status quo with a, a couple of minor tweaks. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it, it does uh, fall to the Ontario Municipal Board. So council's options at this point are to pick an option. You know, whether that's an option I like or not is, is uh, uh, you know, beside the fact. They can pick an option, and that option can be appealed to the Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, they can choose not to act and to continue the status quo. That dis- that non-decision can also be appealed to the uh, Ontario Municipal Board. Um, the you know the only danger is council decides to delay this for a fifth time, uh, which this has been you know kicked down the road uh, since 2001 al- amalgamation. Uh, this hasn't been dealt with, and councils repeatedly pushed it forward to the next term. 
So they could do that, but our petition is sort of the fail-safe if they decide to do nothing. Um, the petition does sort of force them uh, within a 90-day deadline um, as soon as the petition is submitted to submit a new uh, ward boundary uh, system. So they don't really have an option, um, you know, to not deal with this issue at this point, as far as I can see. Um, you know, and, and it's in their best interest to uh, pass a system sooner than later, I think, because the further this goes, the, the more this will be in the hands of the OMB instead of council. Um, so I think they should they should operate in good faith with this process and uh, and do their jobs. Maybe we should back up a couple of minutes here, and and get sure. for for those who may not fully understand why this is actually happening. Uh, this uh, this is all about democracy. This is all about fairness. This is all about equal representation. The federal government does this on on a regular basis, and of course, the provincial government usually just follows along and and adopts whatever the federal boundaries are. But this is really supposed to reflect population shifts or population growth. Yep, and uh, so right now we have a ward system where. If you're a resident living on Hamilton Mountain, particularly Ward 7 is uh, 62,000 residents. Um, if you're living in Waterdown, it's 16, 17,000 residents. So, uh, you know, you have a situation where mountain residents are have three times less uh, um, representation at City, at City Hall. There are 70,000 people being represented uh, as one ward and, you know, uh, 17,000 being represented as uh, one ward as well. So that's a, it's a big imbalance. And that's existed since amalgamation. Those decisions were made in order to make amalgamation an easier pill to swallow. Um, but, uh, you know, here we are 16 years later after multiple promises to revisit that issue and make things a little bit more fair. Um, so it, it's a situation where residents of the old city of Hamilton have been underrepresented historically, and, and that's what this effort is, is all about. Um, and, and I've mentioned it before, too, that no one uh, pushing for a change is, is recommending anything drastic. Um, it's a matter of uh, just balancing things a little bit, but every part of Hamilton will still have representation. It's just that that will be more equal between wards, which I think most people would agree is, is a pretty fair arrangement. And, and as you mentioned, this should have been done at amalgamation. Uh, the, the province decided not to because, well, there's enough kerfuffle about amalgamation itself at that time. But it was supposed to be up to the, uh, the next council to do that. And, and as, as we've talked about, they kept kicking it down the road. And their solution to this has been, Matt, uh, just to remind our listeners again, uh, they say, yeah, I know, well, you just give us more staff. Give us more administration staff. Increase our budgets, and, and we'll be fine with this. We don't need to do this. That that seemed to be the attitude of a lot of the councillors. The problem with that, first of all, it's like you and I are paying for that. I mean, you know, the, the cost of administration staffs for city councillors has gone up exponentially in the last 15 years. But those people don't vote. You know, I, I, that's fine to say, well, I've got more people to answer phones and write letters and send letters off to my constituents, but it's the it's the representation that matters here. Right, and and also it's an important point. Uh, I've heard some that have raised uh, questions about the cost of potentially adding a city councillor, which doesn't have to happen uh, if ward boundaries change. They could continue with a 15-councillor option, so... Uh, but I've heard people react to the idea of adding a councillor as, uh, you know, that will cost us more money. But the, the status quo is costing us about roughly the same. It's a bit of a wash in terms of right now you have councillors that they have to represent more people in their wards, so they need more staff to, uh, to handle that. Um, if we added a councillor, um, then those, those uh, staff wouldn't be as necessary in those wards. So it's... Uh, it's not really a cost issue when it comes to how this was, how this will play out. A new ward boundary system doesn't have to cost us more than our current ward boundary system, but it can 
sort of achieve uh, a more democratic and more fair arrangement. Yeah, I find it somewhat hypocritical for councillors to be holding staff's feet to the fire to have a 1.8% increase. And look at the percentage increase they've had in, in their own administration staffs over the last number of years. Well, and this is this is also what bugs me about this report as well on the on the ward boundary issue that uh, the majority of council asked for this report. Um, they hired experts to develop the report. They went out and uh, did you know these rounds of consultations with the public. Um, and now you know we're finding out in in the new report that councillors want essentially not much to change, only a couple of tweaks. We didn't need to spend $270,000 to come to that conclusion that council likes the status quo. I think we all knew that going in, but, uh, it, you know, it's uh, if we're starting to look at, uh, you know, the value of libraries and we're in the middle of a budget season where we're running a fine comb over uh, each and every expense and each and every program, um, I think we need to cut out some of this as well, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, hiring consultants and then ignoring their advice. I'm not against having a third party look at this, and, and I think there is some value to that report that was developed. But at the end of the day, the value is greatly diminished if council is not going to act on any of its recommendations. And then, uh, you know, additionally, taking the additional step of trying to inject their own political uh, sort of wishes into a ward boundary uh, review, I think uh, that's a complete waste of money, and, and, and you know, it's uh, it's not chump change. It's uh, it's over a quarter million dollars that could have gone to affordable housing or our libraries or any number of things, right? So, Well, there's another element to this thing that I find, and I, I'm, this was my commentary, of course, at 810 this morning, uh, which, by the way, we posted up on, on the show page. But there's a self-interest aspect to this that really bothers me as well. When you've got elected officials at any level, Matt, Yep. that are, are, are deciding their own destiny and saying, this is the jurisdiction that I want to represent. I'll draw the ward boundaries. The term for that in politics is gerrymandering. And basically means we're going to manipulate these so that I'm sure that the strength that I've attained over the last number of years, because all these people are veteran counselors, is going to stay there. I don't want, you know, that neighborhood there always votes for me. I don't want to lose that ward, that neighborhood. I don't want to lose the ward either. So I'm just going to make sure that the people that I know are going to vote for me stay in my ward. Uh, that's... That's reeking of self-interest. You could even make an argument that it's a conflict of interest, and I don't think councillors should have their hand in this at all. I agree, and I think the province has to have a better process for how ward boundary reviews are uh, are undertaken because they need to happen every 10 years, not leaving it up to the hands of a council. Well, like what the feds do, you know, this, it's an independent third party, and, and they yeah. listen. I mean, they do the same thing, public hearings, and then they say, okay, here's where it's, this is where it's going to be. The, the government, the, the parliament doesn't vote on this, and they're told this is where it's going to be. Right. And, and I think, uh, you know, there's a heightened awareness about some of these issues right now because, you know, we're talking about a municipality, but uh, as far as American politics goes, the, you know, state houses have done a lot to gerrymander districts uh, so that we end up with, you know, Republican majorities in, uh, in particularly the Congress that, uh, you know, even, even sometimes where they won't win the popular vote in terms of the congressional vote, and they'll win the majority of seats, right? And, and it's, a, it's similar to the way that the majority of voters didn't vote for Donald Trump, but he won the election, right? And, and that's comparing it to a much broader political uh, situation that's uh, it's not exactly the same as the city of Hamilton, but it's the same sentiment that uh, politicians should have the ability to draw their own political boundaries. Uh, it, it absolutely flies in the face of... Uh, of the process and uh, of democracy. Well, I, I mean, I have a problem with them, in, you know, giving themselves raises, which they've done. I have a problem with them increasing their office budgets, uh, which they've done as well. 
But you know what you're going to hear, because you heard this the last time that this process came before council, Matt, was the councilors are going to come back to you and they're going to say, look, I don't hear any hue and cry to do this for my constituents, so why should we even bother? Right, and I mean, if if they didn't hear a hue and cry, then uh, you know why spend the money on the report in the first place? I think uh, I, I think that's a moot point at this point that they've already spent that money. Um, they have a report uh, in front of them. They had options in November, and they they still have options now. Um, so it's I mean, there's of course um, you know my response to the the lack of hue and cry. It's not a it's not a sexy issue, and. Uh, you know, uh, governance review and ward boundaries aren't uh, top of mind for most people, but it's still important work. Uh, and I think it's just a cop-out for councillors to say, well, there's no there's no hue and cry to do the right thing, but the right thing is still there and the, uh, available for them to do. So it's... Uh, um, I kind of reject that argument. Well, I, I think it's pr- pretty flimsy as well. I mean, you know, there was no hue and cry for them to increase their office budgets, and they did that. Uh, there was no hue and cry to give them more money on their salary. They did that. I mean, uh, there's no hue and cry for them to do anything. I mean, I, there, there are one or two contentious issues every term of council. LRT happens to be the one this time. It was the stadium last time. But this is about fairness, and this is about equity. And it, it quite frankly, it, you made the point at the beginning of our conversation they have a responsibility here. The province told them 17 years ago to do this, and now they're getting around to it. And and like you say, had it not been for the, the threat of the OMB, I don't think they'd even have done what you, they've done so far. No, and I think, uh, I think they were pretty prepared to drop the report back in November when it was presented to them. Um, I think the sort of the promise that we would deliver a petition uh, to impose a, a deadline on this is, is the only reason we're still talking about it today. Um, and, I mean, it sounds cynical, but I've seen them pass this on to uh, future terms of council again and again. So I think I think that would have happened again. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I predict that when it comes to the General Issues Committee on February 1st, um, I think I, I think they will move to pick uh, the the councillor-inspired option that's in the new report, uh, which is essentially it's, it's a couple of tweaks to boundaries, uh, but zero change really effectively yeah. in terms of effective representation. Um, if they do that, it's uh, it's still you know there's still a process. Like I said, we can appeal that uh, decision to the Ontario Municipal Board anyway. But that's my prediction on this: is that council will opt for uh, the majority of council will opt for the the least uh, change. I, I hope they prove me wrong in that, but. Uh, I've been right about my predictions so far. Think, so. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty safe bet. Listen, you're starting to break up on yourself there, so and we're just about out of time. If folks want to sign the petition, how can they do that? Uh, we have four locations in Hamilton: uh, Mixed Media at uh, James and Cannon, 154 James Street North; uh, Candy Works at uh, 560 Concession, just at East 23rd; uh, Downtown Bike Hounds at 19 John Street North. Uh, and uh, Collaboration Station at 294 James Street North. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A report uh, the council's going to have to deal with now that says that uh, adding an extra LRT stop at Bay Street, which a lot of local businesses and, and for that matter, the uh, Chamber of Commerce are endorsing, would probably add a significant cost to the project. Uh, we'll get you the number in just a second. Paul Johnson, of course, is the director for the LRT project here in the city of Hamilton. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us an update on this morning. Paul, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing well, Bill. Still getting over my Packers not going to the Super Bowl, but other than that, life is good. Listen, there's there's always room for one more on my Patriots bandwagon here. So I'll, oh I'll, I'll, no, just, no, just consider now, that. Now, now I'm driving through a tunnel, Bill, and I'm afraid I just can't hear you anymore. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll talk after they win. Anyway, uh, th- listen, this is a, a a topic that we've been actually discussing for quite some time because there are a couple of mm-hmm. businesses, and I know that Keenan Loomis from the Chamber made a presentation to the council about about this. Uh, before we get into the cost of all this thing. What are your thoughts about an extra stop? Well, you know, as I said all along, adding too many stops, uh, you know, removes this as being rapid transit, but adding strategic stops along the line is not outside the realm of possibility. And this is a stop that there is, you know, a compelling case brought forward from the chamber and and others um, from a business development and investment perspective. So worthy of us having a look. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned off the top, uh, we've uh, provided now a bit of our analysis of what it takes. Every time you add something on the LRT, there is a fair bit of technical work that has to happen first before we uh, bring forward the information. And we've done that now. And, uh, you know, the results are that, uh, yes, it's a cost, but not an overwhelming cost. This is a billion-dollar budget. So, uh, yes, $2.6 million, uh, as a basic stop location, plus some additional costs related to um, the property impact. Uh, may seem like a lot, but, uh, you know, on a budget of this size, uh, it's certainly doable from a financial perspective. Um, and now it's just really listening to what, uh, what the committee and council think is uh, the best way forward on this. Well, Paul, when we talk about stops along the route here, and well, we'll talk about the Bay Street thing since that's the one that's on the table right now. Is is the stop actually going to be right at the intersection or just in the area? Uh, no, I'd probably be right at the intersection. Uh, you know, typically these stops, uh, uh, we try and actually do what we call split stops, which are that the stop moving eastbound is through the intersection and moving westbound is through the intersection. So it's actually on either side of uh, of the intersection. That's sort of the preferred approach. It keeps up the running time. The LRT actually will run through the intersection, stop at the platform, and then can actually just start up again right away once uh, passengers get on and off. And so, you know, with, with stops, it's really about does it, does it impact our operations in a significant way? If it's adding a tremendous amount of time, running time-wise, then those are the ones you have to start to question because then, again, takes it away from being rapid transit. And in this case, as we've stated in the report, this is not, um, uh, this is a stop that really disperses people more. So less people will get on and off at James. If this stop is added, more will probably it just be dispersed between the two stops. So it actually doesn't add a lot of time from a running time perspective. Well, and and I know that some people are going to have the stopwatch here and say, well, it's not rapid anymore. I get get that. But like you say, if you're talking 30 or 40 seconds of it, it it just, I I think convenience sometimes would would outweigh that. Uh, Because if you look at what's going on in that area, right at Bay Street there, you've got First Ontario Centre just down the street, just a block away from there. You've got uh, the First Ontario Concert Hall just right across the road. There might even be some people that want to stop at City Hall and visit you. So, I mean, anything could happen. It seems to me as if it's a stop that probably would be very beneficial. Well, and that's the case that's uh, it's been made. Of course, uh, you know, when it came forward, it was not about just adding a stop because there's a there's a corner there. It's an intersection, and let's have a stop there. Uh, the sense was that this could actually help spur development in that area. There is some, uh, you know, some land there. There are lots of parking lots and things along those lines. And we've known for years people, uh, you know, have had a desire in the city to see less surface parking lots and more uh, building on those. Uh, so if this can spur some of that activity, and certainly there's lots of reasons. It's at the west end of of a very busy 
the uh, you know um, uh, employment area with the Jackson Square and the towers that are there. So you've got the Standard Life Building right at the corner there. You've got the McMaster Downtown Campus right there too. So some compelling reasons for it that uh, you know if this was really just a stop um, that was was meant maybe to be a little more convenient for for some folks, I'm, I think we would have pushed back a little harder. But uh, this was worthy of its investigation, and and uh, you know we'll see where it goes. I think it all has to be contingent on budget. Now <laughs> we are adding things to a to a budget that's going to be tight. But uh, you know that's what we've sort of said in the report. If council wants to go in that direction. Uh, you know, let's ask Metrolinx to consider this as as uh, as part of a possibility, uh, depending on the budget. The the two point six million or two point five, whatever it's going to turn out to be here, which is the the proposed budget, if you had to do this. Uh, now, what does the, what does that include? Actually, because I've had some people already get in touch with me today and say, "How why does it cost two and a half million dollars to put? A, all you're going to do is stop for heaven's sakes. What do you need to build?" Well, you do need to build the platform, and you do need to put all the amenities on those platforms. Uh, and, and uh, of course, there is more infrastructure that's involved at a stop location. Uh, there's also going to have to be some widening. Uh, the platforms themselves, uh, you know, can be somewhere in the neighborhood of three meters wide. So we have to widen the roadway out there. And, and there is some property impact that's not included in the two, that $2.6 million because, of course, we haven't done that investigation yet. Um, uh, so the cost will go a little bit uh, north of that if this is if this is put into the budget. It's no different than every other stop location that we're doing. So there is some some work that has to happen. This is not, uh, you know, simply a a where we put a pole up, a bus stop kind of pole or or a little shelter. These are these are long platforms. They're they're about 60 meters long. Uh, there's got to be two of them, obviously, moving in both directions. So there's a fair bit of work to do. But again, on a billion dollar budget, uh, the 2.6 million cost isn't really what's uh, what's worrying us. Um, it was more some of the other operational issues and whether there were uh, utility issues beneath the surface that we needed to take into account. It doesn't appear that that's the issue. If, if people are trying to get a, a picture of what this might look like in their mind's eye, I, it would, I, I would think that a comparator might be if, uh, if you look at the, the streetcars on Spadina Avenue in Toronto that, uh, that run right down the middle of the road with those platforms right there in the middle of the road. Is, I, I know it's not going to be exactly that, but is that a pretty fair comparator? It is. It's uh, it's a good comparator, and and of course, there's also pictures coming out of Kitchener Waterloo that show uh, their LRT system. So these are they're just they're small platforms. They're raised about the, the the height of a of a sidewalk. To be honest with you, it just allows the vehicle to come in and actually have level boarding, so people just walk right on and off. There's no step to get onto the LRT. Uh, obviously, the platforms have ramps on either end, so they're fully accessible. Uh, for people with all kinds of uh, of mobility issues, so so that's what we're talking about. But when you also look at the platforms, there's lighting, there's seating, there's uh, there's the ability to purchase tickets that's required on the platform because, of course, in the LRT system, it's not a pay when you board; it's a pay before you board system. Uh, so those are the things that add to the cost of adding a platform in uh, along the uh, along the route. If council decides to go this way, and ultimately it is a council decision. Uh, you mentioned about the parking lots, that lot right at the ba- corner of Bay and King, which is owned by the city, of course, now. Uh, is that of any use to you in, in this whole process? Um, in, in terms of, uh, of use for the LRT? Yeah, or, in, well, infrastructure uh, that you may have to construct there. 
Um, you know, there, as I say, the intersection would have to be widened a little bit. So, we, we, you know, where we nip into, uh, we'd have to see how the, the plans actually work out for that. But I think more of what this is all about from a stop location is what future development may be there. Uh, to be honest, uh, I'm not sure we need this stop from a pure let's add a stop perspective. But if this is also going to the greater uh, positioning of LRT, which is to attract the kinds of investment we want to see in our in our uh, along this corridor in our lower city, then you know absolutely let's uh, let's investigate that. So I think we're trying to figure out a way more if this stop is added that it actually enhances the ability for development in that area. Uh, less about us taking up that for the LRT. Well, yeah, and that's a council decision once again, but uh, you would think that that's, well, it's prime real estate, right? In the, the smack dab in the middle of downtown of Bay and King Street, a big piece of property that the city owns, which obviously I guess they will have to make a decision. I mean, that that could well be something that could be marketed at some point for some future project. Well, you know, absolutely, and and you know, I think there's been all sorts of talk. Uh, you know, council's been very supportive of, of uh, endeavors to look at uh, at the properties the city owns, uh, parking lots that the city owns. The downtown councilor has been working very hard at that as well. So, uh, you know, there's lots of, of desire to see uh, not us lose all our parking because you want to have parking in your downtown too, but have it incorporated in a different way. And uh, you know, how do we have, make sure that we've got parking in the downtown for folks, but also not just these uh, broad surface slots that, uh, that, quite frankly, are developable for other uses. And we see some of that happening, you know, announcements over the weekend about the rental housing that's going up in the old All Saints uh, site and other projects that are coming along. Those are the kind of developments that um, we want to see in general in the downtown. And, of course, uh, that'll be supported by LRT. Uh, if this should happen, uh, let's talk about expropriation because obviously on one side of the street there, there are businesses. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, that there's an office tower there on one side. There's, a, I think, a, a, t- a pub on the other side, a tavern. Uh, and th- th- there's a possibility that those areas could actually be affected by this, I would think. Yeah, we, we did know there's a property impact. Of course, I can't talk about what those properties are, but I can no, tell no. you that if we came back and, and found out that there was no way of doing this without, for instance, taking out the west end of Jackson Square or something like that, we never would have suggested that this is a possibility. So we think that the property impacts uh, can be held to a you know a, a limit that would allow this to move forward. But you know, as, as with this corridor, wherever we put a stop and we extend out by that platform length, uh, it does have an impact on property. But but most of it is uh, a small amount of property uh, uh, taken. And, um, you know, sometimes that does allow, though, to put in a stop. It allows the development to happen. Even though you lose a little bit of property around it, it actually spurs on that development. All right, Council's going to uh, obviously deal with this. Is, is, is this the last item here? I mean, uh, because you've got to be getting, I would think, Paul, pretty close to going to the province and, and saying, here's our plan, here's, here's what we want to do and where we want to do it. Yeah, so uh, you know we're we're in those short strokes in terms of here's what we're uh, here's what we're building in that east-west piece. This is the last piece. I mean, at this stage, we're getting very close to submitting our um, our environmental project report. This would have to be uh, an additional piece we'd add in, which would be fine. But we've done the technical work before this. But uh, you know, we're getting to the point where this is the project we need to move on, and we're also you know keenly aware that uh, the more you add, the more the budget does get strained. It's a tight budget to begin with. But really, if the Bay Street stop is back in that gets us to 15 stops that's sort of where we were in the beginning uh, 
Uh, we had removed a couple of stops, but Gage Park's back in. Uh, you know, if Bay Street ends up uh, back in, we're well within the wheelhouse. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of our stops, uh, we haven't heard in the second round of public information centres. We didn't hear a lot of other calls for additional stops, people saying, hey, I've just had another brainwave, can we put one here? Um, so I think we're down to, uh, to this sort of being the last stop discussion we're going to have. What about variations where some of those stops are? I know that you have public meetings on this. Uh, are you responding to any of those? I just got a, a tweet here from Elizabeth, who's listening to us, and uh, just tweets from you here at uh, CHML. Bill Kelly says, what about the Cardinal Newman location, uh, the Stony Creek Municipal Center? People are concerned, as she said, anyway, some people are concerned about that stop, and maybe that's not in the best location. Are these things carved in, in stone yet? Uh, in terms of where our stops are, yes. I mean, we've been out twice. Uh, we, you know, obviously we heard uh, the first round about Gage Park. We put that in so people could actually see it. Uh, the Bay Street stop, we did, we weren't able to show because we hadn't done the work yet, but, uh, but now that's in. But the rest of the stops along the route, uh, we didn't hear a lot of pushback. Uh, there's still obviously questions about, um, you know, how if people want to, if people want to take a more local service, how that is. And, and the answer, of course, is that local bus service will continue to run on parallel routes. So for people that wanted to get off in stops in areas that are between the LRT stops, local bus service is still going to be the best uh, option for local service. This is an express service. This is a rapid transit service. So that's the kind of education we're doing. But to be honest, through our public information centers, uh, not a lot of talk about moving those stop locations anymore, uh, adding um, and adding stops. So I think from a stop perspective, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, email from Jerry, bkelly at 900chml.com, responding to our conversation here too, Paul. Uh, with only one lane of traffic going east and west, uh, and are the buses still going to be running? It's a rather long email. I'm just trying to edit as I'm reading here. Uh, are those buses going to be running in those lanes as well? Uh, at this stage, uh, we, we don't have bus service uh, running along King Street uh, in that uh, in that section where it's only uh, one lane of traffic on either side. The, the local bus service would be on parallel uh, routes. Obviously, you've got buses that will run on Main Street. That's a, a big parallel route. Sure. And HSR is working in the east end around what, the, what that local service looks like. So you're talking about walking a block to the north, a block to the south, and picking up local bus service that's meant to have those uh, many more stops in between. But along King Street, this is, uh, this is the rapid transit uh, uh, corridor for us. The one difference is that out in the West End, so once we get across the 403 and onto Main Street West, there will be some buses running on Main Street West. One, there's more lanes of traffic. And secondly, we've got buses that will continue to run through Westdale Village that will need to come out onto Main Street in order to get to the transit terminal at McMaster University. Paul, let me connect the dots here. We had a conversation a few weeks ago about the, the spur line and uh, and the, the rumors that we had heard that uh, <coughs> that, that was probably going to be next and there was going to be a, a, an announcement about a, a variation on the overall plan right now. Are we close to that? Uh, we hope so. We haven't had an announcement yet. Uh, we hope that announcement comes very soon. Uh, you know, as I say, on the east-west component, it doesn't change anything. Um, this is really all about that new piece to this project that uh, uh, that we've been looking at since 2015. Uh, but no, we don't have any update on that. And uh, uh, so we're hopeful to hear very soon and, uh, and see what that does to change the overall picture for the A line only. But it doesn't change the B line, the east-west component. Uh, we still move ahead as planned on that. Uh, are you privy to those conversations? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, the political... Uh, there you, know, there you are county. sitting in your office waiting by the phone, and you and they're not calling you yet. I mean, uh, you're the, only the project council, coordinator. 
council asked us to have a discussion at a staff level about how we might move the A-line, which is the north uh, piece, forward in a faster fashion. And so we've certainly provided some of the technical information along. But in terms of, uh, of, of how this announcement would take place, I mean, this is a, this is a political uh, an announcement that will come. Um, so our job is to continue to provide te- technical advice to our council. Metrolinks obviously provides it to uh, Ministry of Transportation and through to the Premier. So that's how that's going at the moment. But uh, we're very hopeful we get something very soon. All right, but when they made this initial announcement, uh, when the Premier came to town here and they talked about this, and that's when they we first heard about the spur line down to the waterfront, of course, uh, they basically kind of threw it back on your lap and said, all right, you guys work out the logistics. Uh, and and you started to and realized the, the, the impracticality of that. Uh, do you have any indication at all that if there is going to be a change here, and we've heard that it's going to be increased maybe rapid bus service uh, up James Street up to the airport. I know you can't confirm that, but that, that seems to be the thing that's on the table right now. But there are logistics there as well. I, I, I guess uh, is the same thing going to happen here? Are you going to be charged with the, uh, the, the the plan right now to say, okay, make this work on, on what's already a very busy thoroughfare? Um, you know, the good news is that the city has looked at the A-line in, in some capacity. In fact, some of our rapid transit early planning work was looking at both A and B. So the province has been fully aware of our, our plans along the A-line for, for, for a while. There's a lot more work that has to get done, uh, you know, so they become delinked a little bit. I don't think the timing changes because BRT is a little bit faster to implement than LRT because there's less uh, construction impact. But how it all will look, uh, we really need to wait and see what's, uh, what's available. Uh, you know, and I can just say personally, uh, you know, my hope is that there's an opportunity to have the discussion, uh, you know, about completing a much longer link that will bring, you know, more riders from the mountain, increase and, and enhance service on the mountain, and connect our airport to our waterfront. I mean, obviously, that's what the plan is in our rapid transit plan. So, uh, you know, for me personally, if that's uh, if that's on the table, uh, that's something certainly worth considering. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, this, this, as far as I'm concerned, is a good news story. The city now has a chance to either cut or eliminate a program that's been in place for quite a long time right now that currently gives tax rebates of up to 35% to owners of vacant commercial buildings. You, you understand what's going on here? So in other words, if you have a vacant building, and you know you, you can probably right in your mind's eye now think of a number of them downtown. There seem to be a preponderance of those. Not so much anymore, but there was before they actually get a reduction in the property taxes. And and I can understand why it was put in place in the first place, but it seems to be an idea who's uh, just has outlived its usefulness right now. So uh, what are the possibilities? What can the city do? Let's uh, bring Mike Zagarek into the conversation. Mike is the general manager, finance and uh, corporate affairs for the city of Hamilton, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing well, thanks. Let's, let's talk a little bit about maybe the rationale for putting this in place. This was actually a provincial regulation, right? It is. Uh, it dates back to 1998, Bill, and, uh, and, and I would agree with uh, your introduction. At the time, there was probably a rationale uh, in terms of where the province and the uh, nation were economically, and so to provide some sort of financial relief or assistance to commercial industrial, uh, the Municipal Act was amended and provided relief to commercial industrial as you've identified, 30 to 35% property tax relief. And that's relief not only on municipal property taxes, but the education portion of the property tax. So, so as you've said, Bill, uh, it dates back to 1998. Uh, uh, times have changed, situations have changed, and this has been a long-standing issue with uh, City Council 
dating back to as early as 2005, you may remember. And uh, so, again, I think this is a positive change, and, and uh, the province deserves credit for listening to municipalities and stakeholders and providing some flexibility. Absolutely. I, I happened to be on council when it was implemented back in the late 1990s, and, and, and I agree with you, Mike. There was a rationale back then because there was an economic downturn, uh, and it wasn't just Hamilton. Many of the cities uh, right across this country were suffering from the same deterioration of their downtown cores. Uh, and there were a lot of vacant buildings, and, and a lot of these people said, look, you know, we've invested downtown, we're trying to do what you guys want, but it's pretty tough to get clients. I mean, I, I can remember talking to the Economic Development Department and, and others at the city at that time, and they were begging people to come here and, and, and you know, start businesses, et cetera. It just wasn't happening. So so it, it was a not a bad idea at the time. But did you get the sense that, that, that as time wore on, that there seemed to be a almost an indication from some people that, hey, maybe there's some people that are abusing this and maybe not being aggressive as they might want to be or should be to try to find clients. In other words, there was a, a tax advantage, really, for them to keep the, vac- the, the building vacant. Yeah, I, I think... I, I, don't want, right. I know you can't name names, but, but I know that there was some feeling in the community that that was happening. Yeah, and uh, that, was, that was one of the, the reasons why City Council... Uh, through the years, well over a decade, uh, asked the province and more specifically Ministry of Finance to look at this issue. So if I go back 2005, City Council took the position asking the Minister of Finance to amend the regulation to make it time limiting. To your point is we, we, we wouldn't want a, a chronic situation where a property owner may be speculating, leaving a property vacant, uh, and doing so creates some disadvantages to our commercial districts. And so back in 2005, council had asked that the province limit it to a one-year period uh, and not provide this uh, available to property owners in perpetuity. Uh, So uh, nothing came about. Uh, That request to the province uh, in 2010, Bill, uh, you may recall that council again took the position asking a different different approach uh, based on the outcome of 2005. Uh, they asked the province to convene an expert uh, panel to review the issue. So rather than prescribing the, the terms or limits, council said, can we just look at it? Can we engage our commercial uh, industrial stakeholders? Can we engage our municipal leaders? Uh, and we, can we engage our respective staff to look at the issue? And in part, this came uh, about from the economic summit in 2010. It was one of the action items that came out of the Hamilton Economic Summits. Even our our non-res stakeholders identified this as an issue. Yeah, well, yeah, I know the business improvement areas, including the ones downtown, uh, were actually they were leading the fight on this, saying, "Look, you know, we don't need this anymore, and we we probably don't want it either." Uh, and so it was it was kind of nice to see everybody there. But it's got to be frustrating, Mike. For for I know it was for council, but certainly for city staff too. That, that an awful lot of the things that you want to try to clean up in your city uh, are really under provincial regulation, and, and you really just have to follow the rules that they set up. It is. And, and you know, our, our ask to the provinces, keep in mind this is one tool of a suite of tools that uh, governments have. So uh, as much as count, or the province was trying to, to improve the situation uh, for commercial industrial what they needed to be conscious of was the fact that municipalities have tools as well. And, and I know, Bill, you and your listeners are quite familiar around the progressive work our economic development department does. We have brownfield programs, erase programs, commercial facade programs, BIA incentive programs, incentive programs targeted towards our business improvement areas, towards our downtown areas. 
So in terms of providing some form of assistance, financial assistance, relief to help facilitate economic activity for uh, our commercial and industrial, this was just one tool. And I think it was a tool that uh, at, at, in 1998, uh, there might have been a reason for it. But in 2017, it's uh, outlived its life, and uh, I'm thankful that the province is now providing municipalities flexibility. And, and that's a positive outcome as well. They aren't prescribing the program. They're allowing municipalities to engage, consult, and to identify what uh, best suits their community in terms of uh, you know, some broader set of goals or objectives, not only around economic development, but as well, what's in the best interest of our commercial districts? You got to feel like you're playing catch up a lot of the time here, Mike, with some of these things where things start to happen and and they're, they're without you know you have no jurisdiction over it and you've got to go and 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 basically cap in hand to the province and say, look, can you change this? I know that's property standards and they, uh, people are always upset about that. You know, they call their councillor and say, look, there's a crappy house down the end of the street. Why can't you clean it up? Well, you have to wait 30 days and or 90 days or whatever it is, and and on and on and and, and then we had the problem downtown. Uh, to your point, back in the late 1990s, where people were buying properties and actually demolishing buildings and putting parking lots up. And, and again, you've got to go back to the province and say you've got to change the legislation. Uh, they didn't listen very often back in those days, but at least you seem to have their ear now. Yeah, and and again, uh, so in 2005, council took a position bill. 2010, council took a position. And most recently, in 2015, the province went out. They engaged municipalities, so a... a credit to the province in terms of engaging municipalities and asking municipalities what amendments would help municipalities and the province as it relates to shared outcomes and objectives. And this was one of those amendments that City Council once again in 2015 put forward for consideration. And again, in terms of the outcome, City Council actually asked for flexibility, recognizing that not all municipalities are experiencing the renaissance that the city of Hamilton is in some of our downtown areas. And so we ask for flexibility so that each municipality can consider what best suits their community. And and again, the outcome is very favorable relative to our ask. What about the, the numbers involved in this? Obviously, if there's somebody's getting a discount, uh, that, that's less revenue for the city. Were, the, were those numbers substantial? Uh, so we have about uh, 560 property owners who've uh, subscribed to the uh, to the rebate. And that 560 uh, applications represents uh, just about uh, 3.6, just short of 3.6 million annually. And again, there's a split there between municipal education. So in terms of municipal impact, uh, in terms of taxpayer impact, it represented about $2.6 million annually to local taxpayers. Well, that's money that you wish you had in your pocket instead of theirs. And, and and not only, Bill, is it the financial uh, impact, uh, but as well, uh, you know, in terms of the impact that those properties have as it relates to the commercial uh, districts. We heard from property owners uh, in terms of the additional costs that they bear, additional insurance costs. When they're adjacent to a vacant property, it has a direct impact on their business. So additional insurance costs, uh, there are costs to the municipality, around enforcement, property enforcement. So there are other costs that are over above the direct property tax impact. So when when the council makes this change here, there's obviously going to be a financial impact. So in other words, for a council that's actually heading right into their budget process right now, this can be beneficial. And I don't want to call it found money, but it's money that wasn't available before that may well be available in the future. Yeah. So as we build in terms of timing, 
the province will enact it so it's available to municipalities in 2017. So as we uh, move further along in terms of our 2017 budget process, it'll be an item we'll report back on. We'll have to do some consultation. We've already consulted in previous years, but we'll go back out to the community in terms of issues. But one of the opportunities is to, uh, to amend this program uh, to meet the requirements of the commercial districts and the property owners and, and potentially provide some tax relief to all property taxpayers. So what are your options at this stage? I, I mean, uh, obviously one is to just scrap the program altogether, but as you mentioned, there may well be some people that still need this uh, and other communities that need this. But I mean, from the Hamilton solution, because this is going to be a made-in-Hamilton solution, Mike, uh, what, what are you looking at right now as possible uh, alternatives to what's existing now? So, Bill, going back to 2005, Council took the position on a term limit to limit it to one year. Uh, that would be an option. Uh, we need to better understand the regulation. So uh, listeners were probably quite familiar with our downtown incentive programs. Uh, so those are incentive programs targeted to a geographic area. One opportunity would be to identify geographic areas whereby maybe the opportunity for a rebate is, is available and again, potentially for a defined time period. So again, uh, I think we have options around time limit, as well as uh, I would hope options to identify specific areas, geographic areas, where there may be some extraordinary challenges in terms of uh, occupancy of these lands and getting financing and mortgaging. So those are some of the considerations. We'll go out and consult with the community and based on the feedback, I'm hoping that we'll be able to reach out to the province and better understand the form of the regulation and hopefully it would suit our community in terms of developing more of that local solution, providing some of that flexibility that the province is setting out to provide. And, and what's the time frame on that? How soon do you think you can get something in front of council? So it, it is prescribed in terms of uh, the provincial process. So they've set three dates that uh, we need to move towards uh, the final date in 2017 that we need to move towards is July 1st. So uh, we have some time, but again, that time is going to be occupied, filled by uh, consulting with the community and coming back to council with some options and getting some direction from council as to uh, any potential amendments to the program. You mentioned that obviously the business improvement areas, the BIAs, are on side with this. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, will weigh in on this as per usual. What about the developers? What about the people that own those buildings, that own those properties right now? Mike, are you hearing anything from them? Bill, we haven't heard uh, directly from them. And uh, back in uh, 2010, uh, we did consult with uh, the BIAs, with Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and Ontario Chamber of Commerce. They were, they were favorable in terms of uh, looking at this issue. Uh, in terms of property owners, I think that's one of the groups we want to consult with to understand what potential barriers they may be facing. So, you know, I mentioned previously, we need to understand specific issues in geographic areas. And if there are some barriers to development and occupancy in certain geographic areas, we need to understand what they are, including potentially getting financing. If that's one of the issues, uh, we do have other tools available to us and so we may be able to use some of our existing economic development tools and try to help those property owners. Well, as you mentioned, Hamilton's going through a renaissance right now. I mean, I remember in the late 1990s talking with the Economic Development Department at that time and 
And they were telling us that, you know, vis-a-vis trying to, you know, uh, uh, try to attract investment here, the people just were not re- even returning phone calls to the, to the city and to the Economic Development Department. We know that's changed right now, but we also know, Mike, that, you know, economies tend to ebb and flow an awful lot of the time. Now that you have the opportunity and the ability to do this, does that mean that you also have the ability, if there, God forbid there's an economic downturn, that you may want to bring this back or expand a program if needed? Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. So, so the fact that the province isn't prescribing the terms, uh, I think, provides for that flexibility. So, so again, using their language, uh, they're using the words uh, a flexible solution. So to your point is I would expect that uh, if, if circumstances change and our experience changes around economic growth, is that we would revisit this program as we do with other programs. You know, our downtown development charge exemption program, we revisited that our last go-round, and we'll revisit it again in a few years' time. So the positive approach that the province is taking in terms of providing flexibility, I see that as as a positive change from having prescribed language uh, and again, it'll suit each municipality differently based on our circumstances. Yeah, and that's the, that's really the, the I guess the, the bottom line here, and that's the good news part of this element, isn't it, Mike? It, it's giving the cities, the municipalities, the control once again uh, to be able to do this or not do this as, as that particular municipality is needed, as opposed to simply a, you know a, a, an edict from Queens Park that says this is the way it must be. Yeah, and, and I agree, and I, and I think it's an example where the province is really treating municipalities like a equal partner. And, and this was part of our conversations with the province. You know, municipalities were, were dependent, relying on property taxes. The potential really here is it's a, it's a positive opportunity for the province as well, because currently many of these properties are stranded assets. And if there is now economic activity in those properties, the province stands to benefit to it greater degree than municipalities. They'll get consumptive taxes. They'll get uh, commercial taxes. They'll get income taxes. So again, it's a win-win situation, not only for municipalities in terms of property taxes, but the province can benefit as well in terms of the uh, taxes they collect on on increased economic activity. I I know the City of Toronto has already acted on this. I think before the ink was dry on the uh, the edict from the province, uh, the Mayor Tory had already acted on this. So the sooner we can get this done, the better for the city, especially given the financial pressures that you're dealing with with the budget right now. Yeah, it's a positive in terms of uh, providing a... uh, tool for us to help mitigate, you know, we stand at 4.4% currently, Bill, and Council's working hard towards their target. They've set and staff are working towards the target of 1.8%. So again, this is a positive opportunity to help us move towards that target. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.